You're a little older and a lot wiser. The future is yours. Define aging on your own terms. Welcome to AARP Without Limits with your host, Mike Olander. Hello and welcome. This is AARP Without Limits, WPTF Talk Radio, disrupting aging with the power of 50,000 watts. And our podcast, available anytime on demand at WPTF.com or through our Facebook, AARP North Carolina. Um, I'm your host, Mike Olander of AARP North Carolina. We've got a great show for you today, folks. Senator Jim Perry from North Carolina's 2nd Senate District is with us to talk about our state budget and his priorities and passion for serving his constituents in his district. But first, ladies and gentlemen, as always, my partner in crime and esteemed production engineer here, Jason Kong, is with me. Jason, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you doing? I am doing really well. We are in the fall season now. Yes, I brought in my pumpkin spice headphones for the occasion. No, these, these are not pumpkin spice, but... Uh, <laughs> You knew I was going to go to the pumpkin spice thing, didn't you? <laughs> How could you not? That's like that's become the new, I don't know, fall craze. Everyone just loves everything pumpkin spiced. It is, and you know what? Um, it's funny you mention it, like right off the top, that because I was thinking about that as I was driving in today. I saw a segment a week or two ago, specifically on Starbucks, and they're talking, oh, the new pumpkin latte, blah blah blah, right? Well, it was interesting, but a lot of the marketing that's going on around pumpkin spice now is attributed to Starbucks's campaign or a marketing strategy to promote that product going back some years. Interesting. Yeah. And at first it was like, okay, I haven't seen pumpkin spice stuff forever, you know, like potpourri and air fresheners and candles and stuff. But now it is kind of everywhere. Like you get towards the end of the summer, you can be in Walmart, you can be in a in a general hardware store, and you will see that <laughs> stuff creeping in. And then now, you know, we're at a point where, you know, for me, as you know, Jason, I'm a seasonal guy. Yes. You know, grew up in the Northeast with very clearly defined four seasons, and fall was always, you know, one of the favorites and still is. But it takes me, you know, we got a bit of a warmer uh, warm, longer, warmer season here in North Carolina than the Northeast. And so it's, I kind of go kicking and screaming, leaving summer <laughs> sometimes, but now I'm at that point, right? And, um, I am embracing it. Also in seasons, uh, as you know, we've got a government shutdown and all this going on because of the end of the fiscal year, kind of tis the season for that. Um, but, um, also surprisingly, our state budget did wind up concluding this fall as well as as opposed to the summer when it needed to be. And um, that's been in the news quite a bit because, um, you know, there's been some controversy around that, uh, some good, some not so good, depending on your perspective. Um, But for AARP, definitely there were some things that um, we were excited about, including things like Medicaid expansion and and some funding uh, for services that are really, really important to older adults. And so I'm really excited about our guest today, uh, Senator Jim, Jim Perry uh, represents North Carolina's 2nd Senate District, um, and uh, he's very instrumental, a big champion for some issues that AARP really does care about. Senator Perry, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Senator, before we get to your work in the state Senate, uh, I want to make sure people know a little bit about you. Um, so if we could, let's begin uh, with your background, tell us a bit about your life, your your work prior to entering the legislature. 
Sure. So I was in the healthcare arena for about uh, 20 years. I worked uh, in the dental industry after a short time in the uh, acute care industry. I ended up becoming a chief operating officer of an organization with uh, about um, 250, 300 locations in 40 states around the country. Uh, we built that from a small family-owned business uh, up to an enterprise value of about uh, $2 billion. Wow. So uh, saw a lot of growth over time. And what that allows you to do is make a ton of mistakes and you get to learn from them uh, with that kind of growth. So I spent the majority of my adult life in that industry and, uh, you know, had a lot of great mentors and folks who helped me along the way. Um, I went to school here in North Carolina. I attended a community college, transferred to North Carolina State University. And later in life, I went back to Keenan Flagler Business School at UNC and got an MBA. Wonderful. All that expertise. We're certainly very lucky to have you here. Uh, before I ask you about the Senate specifically, uh, what, with such a great uh, background and, and obvious success working in business, what uh, inspired your interest to get into uh, politics and to work in the legislature? My, my wife likes to say that it is a lack of intelligence that... Uh, <laughs> allowed me to do that. No, so it was not something that I ever anticipated doing, but uh, we we sold the company to a private equity firm back in, in 2006. And uh, it wasn't that long afterwards, maybe about four years, five years later that uh, some, and I had reinvested in the company, <clears throat> but some legislation was introduced that would have put us out of business overnight. So I, I had to learn to walk the halls and talk to lawmakers and learn how the political process worked. And uh, it was at that point in my life that I realized that um, you may not have an interest in politics, but sometimes politics may have an interest in you. Hmm. And, uh, if fear is a powerful motivator, I remember laying in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering, I have three daughters. And I was wondering, you know, how in the world am I going to pay to raise three kids and we're about to be wiped out financially, um, you know, what's going to happen to my family? So that was, uh, I was, I was forced to go from zero knowledge to a doctorate uh, very quickly in the political process. Wow, that that is fascinating. And thanks thanks for sharing that. Um, inspiring for sure, given where, where you're at now, uh, being in the state Senate. Um, you're now in your, your your second full term in the Senate, representing the second state Senate district. Uh, please, if you could tell us a bit about your district and, and, and what are some of the local or state issues that you and your constituents can uh, are most concerned about or care about the most? Sure. Glad to. Um, thanks. I was appointed in 2019, about uh, three days into session. So I got the majority of that one. And then I ran for office uh, for my second. And this is the, the third time I'm actually serving. Uh, my district has changed because of redistricting. Currently, I, I represent uh, Lenore, and that's where I live in Lenore County in the eastern part of the state, uh, Craven and Beaufort counties. Um, you know, in eastern North Carolina, we have a lot of uh, tier one counties. Uh, so, you know, that's where we've had the majority of the population loss that we see in the state is going to be on the, the east and the west. Um, and we've certainly certainly had it tough. But uh, agriculture, number one economic driver in the state, certainly outsized here and uh, our military, uh, military being the number two economic driver in the state and certainly very important to us in the east. Mm, now, um, 
After we go to a commercial break in a minute or so, I do want to get into you about what's been going on in the legislature, especially when it comes to the budget and all that has for the state. But in addition to being the the chair of the Finance Committee, you're also on Health, Commerce, and and Insurance, Redistricting, and the Rules Committees. You're also the Majority Whip, and I wanted to ask you about that because I I was wondering, you know, with the supermajority, I would imagine that that job might be a little less stressful um, as opposed to, you know, having a slim majority. But is that the case? Am I all wrong about that? What's it like to be the whip in 2023? I, I think it depends upon the issue, right? Because, yes, we are all registered Republicans, but we come in different size, shapes and flavors. And depending upon the issue and the area we represent, our constituents may be very passionate. So we, you know, we do have different opinions on on various topics and you know, uh, thank God that we still have the ability in this country to have our own opinions. Absolutely. And so this year with so much going on, I, you, you find yourself running around a lot. Um, just just curious about it. I, I'm just fascinated with the legislature and how it works. Yeah, we, we've been running around a lot. We've had a lot of different topics that people feel very differently about and a lot of conversation on it. So coordinating those and the issues has been a, it's been a handful. I bet. Fascinating stuff. Uh, When we return, uh, we're going to speak to Senator Perry about the state budget, but about the process and what North Carolinians have to look forward to. Uh, This is AARP Without Limits. We'll be right back. And we are back. This is AARP Without Limits. Folks, we always, always love to hear from you. And just a reminder, you can reach out to the show with a question, with a comment, with a suggestion for a future guest or topic by simply sending us an email to AARP without limits at AARP.org. I promise you, I check that email box all the time and love getting back to you um, and hopefully fulfilling your uh, request. We've been speaking today with Senator Jim Perry, who represents the second state Senate district. We've been talking a bit about his background and his transition into uh, the state legislature here. We do want to get into some specifics uh, with some current news, because obviously in the last few months, the issue of state budget has been something we've all been hearing about in North Carolina. And so, Senator, I wanted to ask you about that um, the process here this year certainly took a bit longer than, than many people had expected. Can you give us your take on the budget process this year, how it played out and why? Uh, sure. Um, and, you know, I've been known to have a lot of opinions. Uh, usually folks don't want to hear them. Uh, the budget process uh, tends to frustrate me because I believe that we all know what day the budget is due on the day we're elected. Uh, you know, remember, I, I came out of, of business where we had to eat what we killed. So I, I tend to get a little frustrated with lack of efficiencies. You know, that being said, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a data geek. So I, I went back and looked at the history of state budgets. And what was interesting to me is once we established a short session to go back and make uh, technical corrections and, you know, the budget process changed, I think, around the um, late 60s, early 70s. But uh, the budget hasn't been out on time, but like 20 to 40 percent of times since the uh, the late 70s. Wow. This really isn't (laughs) new. You know, I was wondering if continuing resolution did it. I I think more people pay attention now on social media. But throughout time, the the budget has rarely 
uh, come out on July 1. So that gave me a little perspective and settled me down a bit. But, you know, it is still frustrating. Um, I, I'm told that there's two big problems in state government budgeting. Uh, one of those problems is when you don't have uh, any money. And the other is when you have a lot of money uh, because you, you got a lot of decisions to make, a lot of tough decisions. But, you know, overall, I believe that we we had a lot of uh, good things happen in the budget. That that budget, when you look at the budget document and the uh, the money report, which is you know, mostly capital, uh, it's fourteen hundred pages. Hmm. So to think that I'm happy with everything in fourteen hundred pages, that, that's just asinine that that has never happened in the history of state government that, you know, everyone is happy with everything in there. There are things in there that I don't think should be in there. There are things that are absent that I would like to see. But overall, uh, I think uh, if we're going to be reasonable, we have to acknowledge on balance. There's a lot of really good things in there for our state that help a lot of people. Great. So and let's get right into that, especially when it comes to funding items that are important to older adults. And I know this is important to you because you in particular have been fighting for um, um, funding for skilled nursing facilities and I'm sure some other things in there. So can, can you talk to us a bit about that? What's in there for older adults and especially those things that are you're the most passionate sure. about? Well, you know, healthcare care uh, is super important and we face a lot of difficulties. First, we, we've got to understand and acknowledge uh, that when we say the phrase baby boomer, that implies there was a spike in population, right? Mm. And there's not a corresponding spike that was behind that baby boomer generation to provide us with people to take care of those people. So at some point, just mathematically, we were not going to have enough people to take care of the generations that came before us. That's right. Yep. So I'll, I'll say, I don't care how much money we put into healthcare, we are not going to have enough providers just from a, a sheer mathematical standpoint, right? Because mm -hmm. we didn't have a baby boomer generation then a second baby boomer generation. So we, we've got to be realistic about that. We also, uh, I so my, my mom is aging. Uh, my mother uh, also suffers from dementia. My in-laws are, are, you know, they've turned 80 this year. So these issues became very personal for us as we were learning more about it and researching. And I, I really dug deeply into the skilled nursing space because I, I read about, well, they didn't have enough uh, people or this was happening or that was happening. And I was chairman of our health care committee before moving to, to finance in this biennium. So I really dug into it and, you know, I, I'd have people ask me, they would ask me about having more inspections of nursing facilities because they, they'd hear a story that they were not happy with. And I, I think any of us that hear those have to think about, well, you know, how would you feel if it was your parents or your family? And I, I think we know how we'd feel. But here's the reality that I found, and that is that the state of North Carolina has an obligation to reimburse those facilities at least at cost. And uh, it's very clear to me, and in, in looking back, uh, it doesn't appear to me we met our obligation. And when we look at the way the cost just went through the roof during COVID and wages, the, the wage inflation going through the roof, well, you know, private industry uh, moves more quickly than those who are dependent upon state funding. If the funding is even there, the wheels of the state just move slower. Um, so what we had is a situation where the state wasn't paying enough to these providers for them to be able to hire people. You know, someone was changing bedpans three years ago for 12 bucks an hour. 
Well, now they can make 19 at Starbucks. They don't change bedpans for 12 anymore. Mm -hmm. We had more people leave that industry than any other industry. I mean, it was it was amazing to me. Um, and, you know, we wanted to educate our members as to the challenges faced in that industry. Hey, hey listen, you see this gray hair on my head. I'm going to be in one of those facilities one day. You know, mm -hmm. my my uh, my parents, my family, my my in-laws, they're going to need them a lot sooner than I am. I want to make sure they're appropriately staffed. And in order to do that, the state of North Carolina must meet its obligation uh, the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services actually has to sign an affidavit that we are reimbursing at least at cost levels. So we had a big push on education and helping people understand uh, how the industry had been impacted by cost, how we had, in my opinion, underfunded it for many years. And uh, as members understood more, we were able to get the recurring funding up to a level in, in year two that is is on par with what they received during during COVID, which is right around their, their reimbursement rate. Uh, it's extremely important. I think over the years it was seen as a negotiation between the houses, between the House and the Senate. You know, if you knew someone was really uh, in tune to that area and wanted it, maybe you use that as a negotiation point uh, for something that you wanted. That's the wrong way to think about this. This is not a negotiation. It is an obligation to our citizens who need it most. And, you know, the more I understood, the more, frankly, appalled I was and uh, tried to have additional conversations. And I am thankful that uh, our members agreed once, you know, everyone really understood. And we've got that recurring funding level uh, up to a more appropriate place today. Yeah, I, I appreciate everything you just said there, Senator. And the reoccurring piece is huge because I think it's probably easy to slip something in that that sunsets, but something that is reoccurring and makes that investment in that in that area where we desperately need it. And as you mentioned before, you know, you referred to your hair. By the way, your hair looks great. Uh, <laughs> you're via video, but. Uh, you know, yeah, ultimately, we're all going to, to wind up needing to be consumers of certain types of services and, and sometimes facilities. And, and we need it's in our own interest as well to make sure that the ground is laid out ahead of us. So uh, those needs will be there for us as well. But switching gears a little bit um, to Medicaid expansion, that has come quite a long way in our state. Um, of course, we've had years, we had years of uh, where we didn't expand the program and then some bipartisanship certainly evolved, uh, which was passed back in May. And uh, now that the budget has been passed, or as the time we're recording this, we're waiting for the governor to not sign it. So it'll be <laughs> wind up becoming in effect law and implementation starts on December 1st. Um, this is going to be important, especially for folks in rural uh, communities. There's also a bonus and, and monthly funding coming from the federal government. What's your take on, on Medicaid expansion? How important this, for this is to the state? Um, your constituents, um, anything else you'd like to add about that? You know, it's been a contentious topic because there, there are many uh, in our state, in our country, regardless of political party, who fear giving something to someone for nothing because you, you don't want to encourage uh, behavior that, that seeks benefit uh, for no work. Uh, at the same time, I think there's a reality that uh, all of us believe in taking care of the most infirm among us. Uh, there have been concerns about financial stability of the program, about uh, spending at the federal level, just a confluence of issues that are actually pretty reasonable and reasonable people can sit down and have differing opinions on it. Uh, where I ended up is that I can't control spending at the federal level. 
you know, I, I've got that financial background, so I am fiscally conservative. I understand accounting. Um, and when I really dug into this and took the time to understand it, I look at it like there's two buckets of money. There's a federal bucket. I can't control the money going out. There's a state bucket. I can control that. And if I choose to not slow down that spending, I don't think that's very fiscally conservative. And uh, realizing that when you haven't expanded Medicaid, it drives up everyone's commercial insurance rates uh, because you have cost shift or realizing that it actually increases your property taxes. If you have a local jail, those county commissioners are responsible for paying for the health care of those inmates. Well, if they had Medicaid and they're out of that jail for 24 hours, which is what your most serious cases require, right? If you get really sick, you're in the hospital for more than 24 hours. Uh, it, it, they pay for property taxes. So I'm like, wait a minute, we haven't expanded Medicaid. So I'm hurting my small business owners. My property owners are paying more property taxes. That kills my farmers. Uh, I can't control the Fed spending. I, I wish I could. I can only control one stream. I, I've got to do something about that. So I ended up in a better place. I think it'll be monumental for our rural areas and rural hospitals that are hanging on by a thread. That is such a compelling case you made there, and I have never heard it put just that way. So I, I really appreciate it hearing your perspective on that. Medicaid expansion, I know you hear from the left and the right different arguments you know, for and against it over the years and the evolution on this. I'm really hoping that there is, on some of these issues, there's going to be a bit more of a bipartisan consensus moving forward. There seems to be some of that now, uh, at least on Medicaid expansion and probably some other things. Hopefully this workforce support and development is another area where we'll continue to see that. Um, and really um, uh, fascinated to see uh, what you continue to do in the state Senate, uh, Senator, on these, these topical areas. ARP really looks forward to continuing uh, to work with you and your colleagues to make life better uh, for all people, particularly our, you know, of course, uh, our older uh, population here in the state, but for everybody, for families everywhere. We really appreciate everything that you're doing. And we could talk a lot more. We'll have to have you back on the show when we've got a bit more time, Senator. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I do just want to give credit to uh, Secretary Kinsley. Uh, you want to hear about bipartisan. Uh, I'm a big fan of Secretary Kinsley's. I think he's doing a great job. He's a great, uh, straightforward communicator, and I have, uh, I have a lot of faith in his ability. Wonderful. Wonderful note to end this program on. Thank you so much for being with us, Senator Perry. Thank you, Jason Kong, for production. Thank you for listening. This is AARP Without Limits. This is Mike Olander signing off.